So I think one of the most common tropes in modern filmmaking, and it's probably one of my favorite, is the motivational speech, right? Uh, whether you're on the football team that is down at halftime, or you're about to fight a potentially losing battle, or you're Rocky Balboa, or whatever, everyone wants to hear that one speech, right? The one that gives you goosebumps, and you like raise your fist in the air, and you're like, yes, we can do it. Like, you know, the, probably the most famous one is William Wallace in Braveheart, right? They may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. And then you like paint your face blue and you go buy a kilt. Uh, I don't recommend it, but you know, if you're Scottish, maybe. Uh, but faced with seemingly impossible odds and a cause that is worth losing your life for, what is it that we want to be told? I'm sure we've all experienced some bad attempts of motivational speeches in our life. People who try to like test this trope out in real life and it just comes out totally wrong. Like, sure, the odds are stacked against us. Sure, the other team might be bigger and stronger. And sure, we might die, but you know what? And whatever the person says here is supposed to be like the clincher, right? Like, it's supposed to give you all the fuel you need to defy logic and give it your all, but it's usually something pretty lame, right? You know what? We've got nothing to lose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or like, you know what? We've got something they don't. We believe in ourselves. <laughs> Thanks so much, Disney. Really? Like, these are the best answers that we have to give people when the chips are down and everything is on the line. Uh, one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, writes about a man who once said that to him. Uh, the quote goes, that man will get on, he believes in himself. I said to him, shall I tell you where the men who are, are who most believe in themselves? For I can tell you. I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. <laughs> Thanks, GK. What this shows us is that every time the source for strength is supposed to be found by looking deep within ourselves, we will fail. And in contrast, this final encouragement that the author of Hebrews concludes his sermon with is rooted in the work of the triune God on our behalf. Why go out and face impossible odds? Because as the author has demonstrated so beautifully over these chapters, Jesus is worth it. And now he must give them a simple final word of blessing, actually called a benediction, before he sends them out. That's what we just read, what Bob, what Bob read for us is a benediction, which literally means a good word, which is kind of like a, a prayer that is prayed at you as well as for you. Like, may God do this for you. And benedictions are really important to ancient literature and speeches, and it's also important in Jewish corporate worship. Most uh, very important Jewish worship services end with what is called the Aaronic benediction. 
Not the ironic benediction. That's like for Jewish hipsters, I guess. But Aaronic benediction like the high priest Aaron, and it's from the book of Numbers, chapter 6. And may God bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the stranger, our author, would have given this closing statement much thought. They're not just like throwaway lines that you pray, oh, God bless those people, amen. Like the stakes were way too high for this community, for his community that was tempted to give up on Jesus. So he crafted this benediction to address the specific needs of his audience and to express a summary of the message that he has given up until this point. It's not just a throwaway prayer. And it's considered by many scholars to be one of the most beautiful and theologically rich prayers in the whole New Testament. And it contains the essential elements of the book that we've just studied. It is Christ's work of effecting the new covenant and God's work in us to do his will. So he gives them this one last bit of encouragement before he sends them back out into the world to put their faith into practice because he knows that they're about to walk back into the same difficulties that they were facing when they walked into that church service. Nothing has changed about their circumstances from the beginning of the sermon to the end. But they had experienced the power of God's living and active word which can penetrate our thoughts and change the way our minds and our hearts are wired and give us hope to face whatever circumstances are on the outside of these walls. Because our confidence is in the work of God in and through us and not in ourselves. So we're gonna see him encourage and exhort us with three things, with the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's read again together in verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus. May God equip you. So the first thing he calls the Father is the God of of peace. And we have already seen throughout the letter to the Hebrews that there were people who were having trouble getting along. There was bitterness in their community, so there was a lack of peace in their relationships. And they were also being persecuted for their faith by both the Roman Empire and the Jewish community around them who did not believe in Jesus. So there was a lack of peace in their society. So being encouraged to dwell on how God brings peace brings real freedom from anxiety. Again, this is not just a throwaway prayer. We are encouraged to dwell on how God is the only one who can bring us peace. Recently, I was encouraged by um, a very godly friend of mine to think about what is the first thing that is on your mind when you wake up in the morning. And whatever that is, is probably your deepest anxiety, right? What is the thing that is possibly paralyzing you to not even want to get out of bed? The book of 1 Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him, on the God of peace, because he cares for you. Notice it doesn't say, figure out your anxieties well enough where you can deal with them. It just says, throw them. 
This is an act of worship and dependence on the Lord in prayer to cast your anxieties on him. What would it look like for us to release those things to the Lord in prayer at the start of each day? Because the peace that God brings is not just an absence of conflict. We are not promised that. We are promised wholeness in his presence. Jesus says in the book of John, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. It is a completely different kind of peace. So we are encouraged that the Father is the God of peace and that he is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He is powerful. The resurrection was demonstration of God the Father's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. The final proof that Jesus has the qualifications to determine the contours of our lives and to demand our allegiance. Because God's promises for peace and freedom from anxiety are based on his faithfulness and his work and not ours. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead means that victory is certain no matter what our circumstances appear to be. Which leads us to the second encouragement in this passage, which is the work of the Son. Verse 20, it says, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is referred to as a shepherd, which is a very familiar image elsewhere in the Bible. It is a title which comprehends and folds together all of the different titles that Jesus was given thus far. And Jesus has been described many ways in the book of Hebrews. He's been described as being greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than the priests, greater than all of the sacrifices, and as the founder and perfecter of our faith, and now as the shepherd. It is because he is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. First Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This means that to enjoy the care of Jesus as the shepherd, we must first admit that we are sheep. <laughs> to be able to be willing to accept Jesus' care for you as a shepherd. If we cannot do that, if we still want to trust in our own abilities and efforts instead of Jesus', it does not mean that we are not sheep. It just means that we are vulnerable. Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 10, I give them, speaking of his sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is why the author is calling and invoking this image of Jesus as the shepherd because he was dealing with a community who was tempted to give up and to run away. And he is saying, your shepherd will not lose you. 
your shepherd will always protect you. And the very reason why we can belong to him as sheep is because of the other thing that he says. It's because of the blood of the eternal covenant. And this is really the centerpiece of what the book of Hebrews has been about. That Jesus shedding his blood on our behalf as the perfect sacrifice and as the great high priest has ushered in a new covenant, which means a new and a better way of relating to God. We've seen in the book of Hebrews that Jesus connects us to God in the way that we need and not in the way that we feel that we need. That Jesus' credentials are from heaven and not arbitrary. What he has done and who he is will never satisfy our expectations of God because they were never meant to. Being given access to God through Jesus' sacrifice for our sins is the only deep and fulfilling transformative relationship that we need. And it is better than we can find anywhere else because it smashes the barrier between this world and the next. It brings heaven to earth. And that is why it is described as an eternal covenant, which means it will never be replaced by a new one. The stranger just spent chapter after chapter explaining that the old has passed away and the new has come. But it is not just one temporary thing being exchanged for another. It is the temporal being exchanged for the eternal. Our relationship with our great shepherd from whose hand we can never be plucked. So we've been encouraged by the stranger to trust in God's work through the Father and through the Son, and then finally, the work of the Spirit. Verse 21. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. While it is not explicitly stated here, the work of God in us is done primarily by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That is how we are equipped to do God's will. And it is the most comforting and paradoxical truth of the Christian life, that we are given a job that is impossible to do unless you are completely dependent on the Lord to do it. He equips us with everything that we need to be utterly helpless and in need of him to work in and through us. All of our work for God is a response to the work that he has already accomplished for us. So how does it say that God is equipping us? By the Holy Spirit, with everything good. (laughs) Everything good. Do you believe that God has given us everything we need to do what he is asking of us. That there is nothing else that you need from him, that he has given you all of himself. And when we're making decisions about what job to take or whether to get married or not or where we're supposed to move, if God has given you everything, all of the resources that you could possibly need in himself, what else do we need? This also means that there isn't something left for us to do for God. 
There isn't something left for us to try to secure God's favor. There isn't a sense of needing to hold up our end of the bargain. For the community that the stranger is preaching to, it was the familiar territory of religious practices that could be managed and quantified so that God's hand could be coerced into giving them what they believed he was holding back from them. Because sometimes we believe we can manipulate God like that, like he can be domesticated. Is there anything you believe God is holding back from you that he owes you? The scripture says that he has given us everything good. Do you believe that what he gives is good, meaning his idea of good and not our own? It is very clear and probably one of the most comforting truths in this entire benediction that God is the one who works in us, which means we cannot do it. Paul puts it like this elsewhere. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you sense the paradox there? Do you see the nuance in what Paul is saying? The first time this really came home to me, I was sitting in a library Uh, the second floor of a library at Biola University, studying this very passage. I was on the floor next to a window. I remember it so vividly that when I understood that it was God who works in us to do his will, at the same time that we are encouraged to work and to give everything that we have, that our motivation to give our all is that God is already at work within us, not only to do it, but to even want to do it. That is why we must depend on him so heavily in prayer because there are so many times when we don't feel like it. There are so many times when we don't want to do it, but he is at work in us both to do it and to will it. The pastor um, R. Kent Hughes says, in doing the works that he has called us to do, we will be more and more his workmanship and more and more our true self. That is because God knows that the work that he's calling us to do will make us not only more like him, but more of who he has created us to be. And this is the case individually as well as communally. God is working in us individually to be at work in this, in the church. And it's easy for all of us to see the flaws within our community. Sometimes easier than seeing the flaws within ourselves. And sometimes those flaws can tempt us to find somewhere easier to live out our lives. But it is often the case that God is using these very things to work in you and through you. And that giving up on a specific community of people would mean giving up and short-circuiting the work that God is trying to do in you and through you, which brings us to our part in all of this. We've looked at the, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and now we look at our work. It says, he will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. 
God's will is a phrase that is thrown around quite often in Christian circles and very seldom do people actually know what they're talking about when they say God's will. And because we usually use it in conjunction with like, am I supposed to move here? Am I supposed to move here? Am I supposed to take this job? Am I supposed to date that person? Am I supposed to do this or that? But his will for us is rooted in his character because he is working in us to become more like him. He's working in us and doing his will means that he will bring to pass in us whatever gives him pleasure because we are created for his glory. We are created to worship. That is our purpose. And God actually says explicitly one time in the New Testament, what is his will? In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, God's will is your sanctification. Amen. Let's go home, right? <laughs> so every time someone's asking, what's God's will for my life? You can answer your sanctification, but also my sanctification. God wants us to become conformed to his image, which means becoming more and more like Jesus, the same Jesus who is better as we have been studying. If you notice at the end of his benediction, he says, amen, right? He says, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen, but the letter doesn't end there, right? Because as we said before, uh, the original context for the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon that was delivered by this pastor to his community, but later it was circulated as a letter to multiple churches, which is why at the end we saw kind of like this laundry list of, you know, say hi to this guy, and, you know, Timothy's about to get out of prison, and you know, good for him, and uh, you know everyone in Italy says hi and that kind of stuff. So hi Italy. Um, but the whole the whole thesis, the actual like thesis statement of the book of Hebrews is found in what might look like a throwaway section of the book. In verse 22, it says, "I appeal to you, brothers." Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's almost like he's saying, don't make me write you the long version, <laughs> right? So, but what he's doing here is he's giving us the whole purpose for this book. It is that he is exhorting us. He's acknowledging that what he has been saying up until this point is very difficult to hear, and that is what an exhortation is. In some uh, versions, it actually says, put up with my word of exhortation. He knows what he's saying is difficult. Exhort is not a very common word that we use in today's culture. It's a very Christian-y word. It's a very churchy word. Um, it often means to sit somebody down and tell them something that is wrong with them and show them what they can do about it, which we don't like to do, right? The only time many of us will sit somebody down and tell them something that they need to do is when it started affecting us negatively, right? That's the only time that we'll have the courage to kind of sit somebody down and say, you know, sometimes we just call it tough love or, you know, we're gonna have to have a, a sit down and have to do a face-to-face and again, most people only do it when it benefits us, but in the book of Hebrews, we have been told to exhort one another 
as long as it is called today, which means don't wait. If God puts it on your heart to give a word of exhortation to somebody. And that is what the stranger is saying right here. Put up with my word of exhortation. It's perfectly normal to write people off who give you news that you don't like to hear, right? But he is a a good pastor. He knows that what he is saying will be difficult for them to hear, but he says it anyway (laughs) with love and truth together. And now we, collective church, have a choice to receive all of these intense issues and challenges that have been given over the course of this book. He knows instinctively as a pastor that some will not receive them because nobody can be forced to respond positively to the exhortation of a friend. But he's exhorting us to submit, to submit to the leadership of Jesus over our lives. Something that um, Pastor Casey uh, said, the very first sermon in the book of Hebrews was actually his prayer for what the series would do in our community. He said, when we get to the end of this book, (laughs) when we get to the end of this book, my hope is that we will be pleading with the risen Christ, command me. Ask of me, exhort me. The context of this is within the local church. The context of the submission of our lives to the lordship and leadership of Jesus is within the local church. And I would exhort you, if it is not this one, find a church where you believe Jesus is leading you not where you feel most you know, tickled by experience or the most affirmed in who you already are, but where you are be- being exhorted to become who God is calling you to be. So I would exhort you to think about in this moment, what have you been called in obedience for during this series? What does obedience to Jesus look like for you in this moment? There is a tremendous blessing waiting for us for obeying Jesus in this way when we do not agree with him. That is literally what obedience is. If you can always say, yeah, good idea, Jesus. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's not obedience. That's agreeing to do something that we find beneficial for ourselves. In real obedience, we do not see the benefit to ourselves immediately, only after we have submitted ourselves to God's will in spite of not understanding or agreeing with it. So for Collective Church, my exhortation for you, participate in our rhythms. Be all in. Participate in our Bible reading plan. Allow the word of God to dissect you the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Connect with a discipleship group if you aren't already and invest in the lives of people who will uphold you through whatever circumstance. And if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, 
Learn what it is like to have a shepherd for your soul. To have the eternal love of the one who died for you while you were his enemy. That is what you get when you make Jesus your shepherd. Amen? Let's pray.